This paid program may not represent the views of Hubbard Broadcasting Incorporated or Federal News Radio. Statements and opinions of this broadcast are solely those of individual contributors or advertisers as indicated. Federal News Radio does not take responsibility for those statements or opinions and accepts no responsibility or liability for any inaccuracy, errors, or omissions reported during this program. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour, a conversation about management with a government executive who is changing the way government does business. The Business of Government Hour is produced by the IBM Center for the Business of Government, which was created in 1998 to encourage discussion and research into new approaches to improving government effectiveness. You can find out more about the center by visiting us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. And now, the Business of Government Hour. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host and leadership fellow at the IBM Center for the Business of Government. What is the mission of the U.S. Global Development Lab within USAID? How is it using innovation, technology, and research to address pressing global development issues? And what is next for the U.S. Global Development Lab? I will explore these questions and so much more with our very special guest, Harry Bader, Acting Executive Director of the U.S. Global Development Lab within USAID. Harry, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for the invitation. Harry, would you give us an overview of the history and mission of the U.S. Global Development Lab within USAID? How does it support the overall mission of the agency? Yes, the U.S. Global Development Lab was created a little over five years ago, and it was intended to be a standalone bureau that had a twin mission. First, it was to concentrate on transforming the international development enterprise, everything about it, making development programs better, making it more accountable to the American taxpayer, greater transparency and efficiency, and obtaining development outcomes near to the national security agenda that truly obtain that which we're seeking faster, more effectively, and more broadly scaled than our traditional programs. But it was also designed to do original experimentation that would have revolutionary impacts in leapfrogging existing knowledge and technologies in order to impact millions, if not tens of millions of lives. And so it had a third goal too, which was to be tied very closely and to be tied as a relevant uh, asset to the field mission. Because, you know, at USAID, which is its great strength, is that the center of gravity for USAID is not headquarters. That center of gravity is reserved for the many, many missions in the field. And that service is delivered through our remarkable foreign service officers who are deployed all over the world. And so the lab, as originally envisioned, had three roles. Transform the development enterprise to achieve leaps in approaches that impacted millions and to be field service oriented where our brothers and services and the foreign service uh, and, and at the field were able to deliver that which makes USAID so successful in that sort of decentralized approach. And 
and it performed nobly. The, the lab is responsible for literally hundreds of innovations, if not thousands, many patents and copyrights, and literally thousands of peer-reviewed uh, articles in the scientific literature. In the process of reimagining USAID, we decided that we wanted to do two things within the lab. One is to redouble its efforts at providing field services, while at the same time maintaining that core capacity to revolutionize the development enterprise. But we realized that in order to do the latter, we really had to be attuned to the former. And therefore, when we had this opportunity to transform USA in these past three or so years, it was decided that the power of the lab could best be extended if we created a new bureau out of three other bureaus. And that is where the lab is going. It is going into the new uh, Development, Democracy, and Innovation Bureau, which is being comprised from three other bureaus coming together so that it maintains its core mission of the lab's core mission of original experimentation, transformative research, and direct applicability to real problems encountered in the field. So I'm very excited about the lab's future in this new DDI Bureau, as it's referred to, Development, Democracy, Innovation, because it creates a, a closer conduit to the field and to a, be able to help our, our uh, foreign service officers in the missions do their job much more quickly, much more uh, efficiently, and with greater success in scaling. We are excited by the process of forming DDI and we hope to have it fully operational within the next month or two. Uh, it's been a, a long and thoughtful process and I think we got it right. And so we should be, we should be there uh, certainly before the new year, but I'm excited to maybe have it uh, be realized if not by late October, than sometime in, in, in November. Well, that's great, Harry. I, I just want to get a sense of the operational footprint of the lab. How is it organized? And how many folks do you have working for you? What's the scale of operation? Now, the lab is currently organized uh, around its three core capacities. Originally, it had uh, additional ones to that. The current core capacities within the Global Development Lab Bureau are open innovation or innovation, digital technology, and science. So the way we look at it is digital transformation, open innovation, and scientific research to apply to problems that are encountered in the development activity. In the past, we also had a very robust program in partnering with the private sector, and we still do that in all three of our core capacities, is that we integrate that which we do, and we'll talk a little bit about that in the open innovation component where our, some of our greatest successes have been when we've actually helped out a business that was then able to scale in a way that no government program could ever find imaginable. Uh, and then also what we, used to, we, we had done originally is in addition to private sector partnering, which we now do across the lab before it was in a standalone center, is that 
we would try to inwardly through an office of operational innovation, try to transform like administrative processes within USAID. And then the other very strong program was revolutionizing. I see using the word revolution because it's, it's apropos to the lab. We see things not as they are, but how they can become. And so we're constantly changing and fidgeting and thinking about, well, I just got this. And so it's a little bit better, but if I just tweak it a little bit more. And so it's just this constant energy. Uh, but we were doing that as well in monitoring and uh, evaluation and assessment. That's great. The important context around the mission, its history, and how it's organized. Now, Harriet, I'd like to talk a little bit more about your role as acting executive director of USAID's Global Development Lab. What are your duties and responsibilities? As the executive director, the role is to do two things. One, unleash the creative energy of the staff. And then second, constrain it to focus on the problems that are relevant to the field. And so it's an exciting role because, I mean, it's, it's an administrative and bureaucratic role, which I, I love being, uh, you know, making sure that people are adequately funded, that they have time and resources to focus on their particular skill sets. You know, we try to help people focus on problem solving where their strengths are, to build their repertoire, to expand their horizons, and to avoid those things that they're not so adept at. And to bring it together, because we work with extremely creative people, very talented uh, and uh, very hard driving, and, and to make sure they have the resources, but also that they have the space to take risks and to fail. Because the way the lab was set up is that it is a, a, a testament to the message that success will not be defined as the absence of failure. And that is the most powerful gift I think that the lab has given to USAID is it stands for the proposition of a forward-leaning, risk-tolerant, in fact, risk-embracing agency that says, I will risk failure in order to achieve ultimate success. And that is a truly liberating ethos within a government agency and was what makes being the acting executive director so darn exciting at the lab. So that's an important context around your role and responsibility as acting executive director of the USAID Global Development Lab. But Harry, I was wondering, in that capacity, what are the top, say, three management challenges or opportunities that you face in your current position, and how are you addressing them? We must integrate a decentralized and discretionary structure, and that is absolutely necessary if you're going to have an innovation culture. You have to be decentralized. You have to empower discretionary judgment. You have to have accountability. You have to have transparency. And you do have to have, ultimately, someone who is in authority. And so it's that, I don't want to call it a balance because it's not really a balance because the two are both valuable in and of themselves, accountability and decentralized discretion. So it's finding not the balance, but the optimum combination of those two very important qualities. And unless you do that well, you're not going to be able to harness creative power. You're not going to be able to envision that which is not yet in existence. 
and you're not going to reach out and take the necessary risks. So my responsibilities, my top three management responsibilities are one, to harness that creativity and then let it go. Let it be decentralized. Let it be self-motivating. Let it be discretionary. That's one. The second one is to make sure it stays true to its core founding, which is to solve development problems that are encountered in the field by our brothers and sisters at the missions. And then third, we must be accountable to the American taxpayer to make sure that this incredible privilege of risk-taking, the ability to fail in order to win the long run, that we are accountable, that we are transparent, that we are efficient, and that in all that we do, as we improve the lives of countless millions around the world, we are advancing the business interests, the national security interests, the prosperity interests, and the safety interests of our fellow citizens in the United States. Very interesting. So, you know, Harry, when you take over a role as uh, sort of in its infancy and really its purpose is applying innovation to development issues and global development issues, it's quite a task. So what has surprised you most since taking over your current leadership role? Well, I, you know, I didn't spend hardly any time in federal service before uh, coming to USAID. And so someone who's in the federal service already knows this, but it was a surprise to me. And that is just how talented and how dedicated the federal service is. And I know that anyone who's been in the federal service knows that. But as an outsider coming in, uh, I was not prepared by the self-motivation and self-gung-ho attitude that you know, everyone in the lab has. It was in no way, a, you know, I did not have to be an aspirational leader. What I had to do is rally them around so as to make sure that there is synchronicity, but everyone's running forward. It, it doesn't require any effort to do that. You know, one of the things I do want to comment on is I want to use as an example a, a person who works with the lab, and I, I'm going to use Dr. Michael Kramer, who founded one of our seminal programs in open innovation called the Development Innovation Ventures Program. And this is just an example of how talented and how motivated people are. I am pleased to say that a member of the lab received the 2019 Nobel Prize in Economics as a co-recipient. And, you know, as a government agency leader, it's not often that one of your staff becomes a Nobel laureate. But the reason why I bring it up is that this risk-taking is what's so essential. His work has found that for every dollar the lab has invested in open innovation, the social rate of return is $5. And that is a heck of a return on investment for the American people. And so that's what, that's what makes it exciting. It's um, realization that the workforce is motivated, talented, and embracing of, of risk if you just let them. So Harry, given your diverse background, what characteristics make an effective leader and what leadership principles guide your efforts and how you lead? I think the first leadership principle that one must employ is that you cannot use the same approaches in all contexts. 
So in addition to serving in Alaska and now within the lab, I also served overseas. I, I served quite some time in eastern Afghanistan and Iraq and Rwanda and, and El Salvador and in conflict environments in a variety of capacities. I think you have to be flexible for the environment. In, in most environments, I think it is good to practice what in military planning is called Auftragstaktik, which is the approach of commander's intent. You tell your subordinates what the mission is and why, what their resources are that they have available, and when it has to be accomplished, and then you intervene no more. You have to give creative people, whether it's a combat situation or a natural resource, environmental conservation situation, or in the case of the lab, international development situation, you have to give them latitude to experiment. But each of those has different cultures and different exigencies that you have to address. And so you fine tune that approach so that obviously in Afghanistan, the degree of leeway is less than perhaps I would grant somebody who is looking at a forestry problem. But I think there's really three ways of looking at leadership. And I'm going to illustrate them by presidents that exemplified these different approaches. Teddy Roosevelt is my favorite president. He tried many different things at once and then slowly winnowed them down as trial and error taught him which direction to seek and, and, and how and what direction to lead. Another one, you know, Abraham Lincoln was a gifted individual of knowing just the right moment to make a decision. He never made a decision too early and rarely made a decision too late. He waited until the suite of options started to be winnowed down by being overtaken by events. And as events progressed, he was able to see which course of action was going to be most effective. And then he would make the decision. And he was just gifted at that. And then, of course, there's another president who I admire greatly, Ulysses S. Grant. And he was just dogged. I mean, he, he would set upon a, a course of action and continue it and push through because he was confident. And and so leadership requires at different times, different combinations of all three of those approaches. But the one quality for success to be had that must be absent is you cannot micromanage. If I've ever learned anything, it is not to micromanage. Now at the lab, it's relatively easy for me not to micromanage because I am not a tech guru. I'm not adept at computers nor smartphones or, I don't know, this thing that talks to you in some people's homes, Alexa or Alexis, I don't know what she's exactly called, but I'm not good at that. But as a consequence, in a lab driven by technology and digital innovation and open innovation that uses these tools uh, and scientific research into artificial intelligence and machine learning, I think that it was a gift that I did not understand these technical aspects because therefore... I did not micromanage. Now, I think some of uh, my staff back in the days in the Alaska Department of Natural Resources might have observed me making more micromanagement calls because I am trained in the natural resources and, and, and wildlife and forestry. And so I, uh, I might step into uh, the micromanagement mode a little too often when I know a little too much. 
so the beauty of the lab is that since I'm not a gifted technologist or innovator, uh, I've been able to empower without encroaching through micromanagement. What are the key strategic priorities for the U.S. Global Development Lab? We will ask Carrie Bader, its acting executive director, when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. To support government financial performance and accountability, financial systems must meet certain standards, and relying on outdated financial systems inhibits progress. ERP vendors are encouraging clients to move to the cloud and consider new technologies such as robotic process automation, blockchain, and AI to enhance financial productivity. Download the IBM Center Report Financial Management for the Future at businessofgovernment.org to learn why and how government can evolve to meet the demands of a digital world. The Ebola crisis in West Africa from 2014 to 2016 was an epidemic that put emphasis on global capacity to respond to international disasters. How can government better assess the needs of those affected and help them? The IBM Center Report Responding to Global Health Crisis by Professor Jennifer Whitner breaks down the U.S. response to the Ebola crisis and provides insights on lessons learned that may aid the government responses in the future. Download your free copy, Responding to Global Health Crisis, at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Harry Bader, Acting Executive Director of the U.S. Global Development Lab within USAID. So, Harry, in the last segment, you gave us an overview of the mission of the U.S. Global Development Lab within USAID. Now I'd like to get a sense of your strategic vision for the lab. What are your key priorities for realizing this vision? Well, the vision of the lab is extremely well articulated in the transformation into the new Bureau of Development, Democracy, and Innovation. And and it comes down to three core capacities designed to deliver two things. And again, those three core capacities are digital technology. The second one is open innovation. The third is scientific research targeting two goals. One is to help the missions in the field solve real problems that are subjecting people to the vicissitudes of poverty and pestilence, oppression, and hunger. Solving those problems that the missions are dedicated to doing is is, is part one of the lab vision statement and mission and soon to be in DDI. And then the other part is maintaining that critical capacity, that that momentum towards original experimentation, embracing innovation, and willing to risk failure. Those are two things that are are difficult to marry, to embrace original experimentation, to embrace change continuously, is a hard thing to do when you're also trying to direct it towards real problems that your colleagues face every single day. And these are momentous problems that are Foreign service officers, men and women, face in the field, eradicating extreme poverty, eradicating hunger, empowering people to a more democratic life. And so, like, just for example, when you look at the digital technology core of the lab and, and now of DDI, it's that what are we trying to strive for? We are trying to strive towards building a global 
digital infrastructure that's affordable, accessible, secure, that fosters democracy, market capitalism, and individual free expression because the economy of the world is connected. And so that's where we have to constantly be focused on what is it and for what end are we applying these wondrous tools of artificial intelligence and machine learning, the incredible analytical capacity, the use of drones and, and satellite technology, we have to ground it to solving the world's problems that are uh, bedeviling hundreds of millions, if not a billion people. And we have to liberate them from want. We have to liberate them from pestilence. We have to liberate them from oppression. And that's the other part about the lab, I have to say. It is an extraordinary privilege to be transforming the lab bureau into DDI at a time of great power competition, where we do have near-peer competitors who do not want to see individual free expression on the internet, who do not want to see democracy, who are content to keep their citizens in ignorance. And so not only are we trying to free the world's people from material want, we are also trying to liberate their spirit and their soul and have their the right to freedom of religion, their right to freedom of expression realized. And that's what we're trying to do at the lab. So Harry, the USAID Global Development Lab is a hub for innovation, technology, and research. I was wondering, can you tell us more about how you're using design competitions such as prizes and challenges and, and what the impact of the development innovation ventures has been in helping the lab meet its mission? Absolutely. Um, one of my three favorite topics, one's open innovation, one is digital technology, and the other is scientific research. So perfect. So the lab has helped field missions and sister bureaus develop 11 grand challenges, uh, 30 separate challenges and prize competitions, as well as the open DIV innovation ventures that you mentioned with over 600 solutions being tested in 100 countries. So I'll just say something about DIV. DIV is, is truly a, a, a fabulous construct. So it's, it's no hard reach to realize that the godfather of DIV received the Nobel Prize or as a co-recipient of the Nobel Prize for Economics last year, because it really is an exciting innovation in its own right for the development enterprise. This is the notion that anyone at any time from anywhere for any idea can submit and compete. And then once selected, and it's very difficult, I have to say as a former academic, you know, a four to eleven percent uh, grant receiving rate is is considered tough. But at Div, it's it's less than two percent of applications get funded. But man, are they game changers when they succeed? Now some of them fail, and that's the key about the Div program. It's a pay for results model with a timetable as well as investments made, not just fiscal, but capacity building and training to help that innovator or that innovative idea get a start so that it can then scale and then help millions. And at some point, I, I hope that we can talk a little bit about that because one of my favorite stories from Div is a company called Phoenix, which is a pay-as-you-go 
off-grid solar electric utility system at the individual household level. And entrepreneurs and innovators, especially in technology, know there's this thing called the valley of death from the time it's a good idea to the time it can scale sufficiently so that it can be self-sustaining. And Phoenix was more than a great idea. It was a great idea, well-organized, and for which they'd done their market research and was providing a service desperately needed, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa, where you can get electricity to people for the first time who live beyond the electrical grid at an affordable and reliable level. It's just, it's just an amazing business model, and they were an amazing company. But as all companies, no fault of their own, they were having some difficulties expanding fast enough to make ends meet. And that's where Div came in. They came in with their idea. They wanted support. The lab provided that support and off to the races. And, and this is to me, the, the new paradigm that the lab brings is that we invested in a private company and the success that we find is that that private company has hence been bought out by an international conglomerate and is now being funded through the capital of private investors and scaling faster and helping more people than could ever be imaginable by any kind of program that is funded by a sovereign donor and dependent upon taxpayer dollars. These are no longer taxpayer dollars that are accelerating the rate of adoption of solar electricity at the individual level across all of Africa. These are now capitalist investors putting their own money in and amalgamating more money than could be ever imagined by any one government and allowing it to grow like a wildfire. And you know, basically, you know, a hundredfold increase in customers at least in, in a mere three or four years. And it's, it's the perfect model to illustrate the power of the Development Innovation Ventures Program. So, Harry, how is the lab working to bring innovative thinking, you know, such as human-centered design, into every element of USAID's work from strategy to implementation? And how is the lab supporting the discovery, incubation, and testing of solutions to specific problem areas, as well as open platforms for innovation? The, the lab, and this is why I'm very optimistic about the success of DDI, because it can't be... I'm going to change your question just a little bit, uh, and that is it, open innovation and human-centered design cannot be coming exclusively from the lab if it is going to benefit USAID writ large. The lab must not be the sole purveyor of innovation and creativity. It must be a force multiplier of the creativity and innovation possessed in every single bureau, every single mission and every single independent office within USAID. And the key is that creativity and innovation has always been there. What the lab is and what DDI will be is a partner with our sister bureaus, with our missions, and with our independent offices so that they can realize uh, the innovation and the creativity of their own staff. And so one of the reasons why I think it was so essential that we formed DDI as Lab 2.0 is because there was so much good information, so much good experimentation coming out of the lab that simply wasn't translating to the field. And this new structure will enable us to help the field themselves 
accomplish all these things. It's, you know, it's so much stronger when you have 82 innovation hubs instead of one. And that's what DDI is going to be. But I also want to touch on something. Uh, we, talk, we haven't talked enough about scientific research. And that's one of the things that our Center for Development Research is focusing on is how best to translate new knowledge into better programs. And their effort under the Higher Education Solutions Network of overall, and now under LASER, it's, I can't remember what LASER stands for. You know, there's so many acronyms in government. I, I start realizing I speak in acronyms, but I actually have forgotten what the original words are for it. So I apologize there. You know, it's a partnership of 102 universities around the world, primarily American, which is as it should be, because it's the American taxpayer, but not exclusively so. And in this network of 102 universities can do long-term and short-term or rapid response to mission questions, whether, well, I'm just going to use it as an example, the lab helped a bureau and a mission address the gaps in helping religious and ethnic minorities who have been driven from their traditional homelands under a pogrom of genocide and help figure out where are the gaps that are preventing them from returning home? Why is it that once those who would seek to you know, eradicate these people from the land, once they have been vanquished militarily, what is it that is present that is the impediment to the return of those populations? And so this university community came together and we are now experimenting and learning why that is so. And that's something that no one agency could ever hope to do. But partnering with uh, Purdue and Notre Dame and Dohuk universities, we are getting closer to some of those answers to restore people to their rightful place upon their rightful homeland. So Harry, digital technology has transformed how we get access to information and how we actually get goods and services as well. Before we get into specific applications of digital technology, I was wondering if you can give us an overview of USAID's first digital strategy and how it seeks to incorporate the responsible use of technology into everything you do. And more importantly, regarding the COVID-19 pandemic response, how have you repurposed the M Health platform in this area? Yeah, I, 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 if, if you will permit me, I'll answer that with two parts. One, generally sure. about the digital strategy, and then more specifically, uh, a reference to MHERO and the work that it's doing in Liberia. You know, the, the pace of, of change is being driven by technology. It's everything from, as I mentioned before, machine learning or artificial intelligence. It's uh, data analytics. It's the ability to have sensors that are small and mobile and integrated. And the impact that it has on finance and economics. So, for example, with a 2G flip phone, the transaction cost of selling a bushel of corn being held in a co-op elevator is now de minimis. You can text on your 2G flip phone, I want to sell three bushels of corn on this day because I got the daily price. That changes life. Just that ability, because technology drives down transaction costs. And so before, where you had to bicycle X amount of bushels or pay for a truck to drive X amount of bushels, it was just 
time and cost prohibitive and sometimes seasonally prohibitive, depending upon weather. And most people who are impoverished farmers are impoverished not because they're not growing enough, but they have to sell their crop when harvested, when there's a glut. Digital technology is changing all of that. The mere access to markets and the ability with the punching in of a text code from a flip phone to mean a 300% increase in the disposable income of a subsistence farmer. That's just one example. The other examples that we can talk about are digital security. When we have communities who are marginalized or deliberately oppressed, whether it's a religious minority, an ethnic minority, the LGBTIQ community, these are all people that are both liberated by technology, but can be destroyed by the misuse of technology. And so, you know, we have to take that into account and we have to build protections for people. We have to protect individually identifiable information. We have to protect healthcare records. You mentioned COVID. Cyber attacks on clinics has gone up at a great rate. I don't know the exact numbers, but they've gone up during this time of COVID because people are vulnerable. And we have to be careful about those records. And what the digital strategy does is say, you must not lose sight of the goal, which is to empower the individual, even as you do so for populations. And you must protect that individual, even as you improve the health of the community. And the digital strategy reminds us in all that we do to do so in a way that is responsible, accountable, gives succor to the powerless, and, and puts a stop to the merciless. And only digital technology can do that effectively, both in time, treasure, and blood. So the digital strategy is absolutely key to ensuring human freedom, dignity, rights, and democracy, whether it's a food program, an education program, an economic growth program, uh, an environmental program, thwarting, wildlife trafficking, timber trafficking, uh, programs to stop human trafficking. These vexing problems that plague humanity can only be addressed by the mass capacity of digital technology. Yes, so MHERO was a, a platform that was originally set up in Liberia to address the Ebola outbreak. And it is a very flexible platform that allows USA and its partners to, to share information that can speed up communication with frontline healthcare workers and by connecting government services to existing systems. So here, here's an example. With MHERO, in many of these places, it takes hours, if not days, to reach certain parts. And by the time, especially with Ebola, by the time you got that information back to the clinic, regional clinic or community clinic, then to the regional clinic, then to the central medical facility or hospital in a larger regional community or city, oftentimes may have been too late. The outbreak has already started, people are being affected, and it was delay cost lives and exacerbated the epidemic. With MHERO, it does a variety of things. One, it just moves, it moves information very, very quickly. Two, it enabled for greater analytics. And third, it was connectivity. It brought people together to establish patterns. And with this 
flexible information with this interconnectivity, we can see patterns upon the human and physical landscape that would allow the positioning of resources necessary to thwart the spread of the epidemic. It really was a, a remarkable thing that helped the Ministry of Health and enabled people to get paid where otherwise they couldn't get paid, to share information where otherwise they couldn't share, and to do analytics and find patterns where before it was just chaos in the firmament. What does the future hold for the U.S. Global Development Lab? I will ask Harry Bader, its acting executive director, when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. How does an agency decide upon and implement a performance management framework that will be successful for their specific administration? The IBM Center Report, a practitioner's framework for measuring results, follows the implementation and results of the CSTAT management framework in Colorado's Department of Homeland Security in hopes that it can guide others who may want to institute a similar approach. Download a practitioner's framework for measuring results by Melissa Wavelet on businessofgovernment.org today. Agile methodology has allowed for agencies to keep up with the growing demands for fast response to problem solving. The Opportunity Project, TOP, serves as a catalyst in adapting agile techniques to solve complex agency mission problems. TOP works with federal agencies to identify challenges and facilitate iterative approaches in response. In the IBM Center Report, Agile Problem Solving in Government, Joel Gurin and Katerina Ribello discuss the factors of success involved in TOP. Download your free copy today at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Harry Bader, Acting Executive Director of the U.S. Global Development Lab within USAID. Harry, I'd like to talk about you know emerging technologies and what the lab is doing in this area. What are you doing to leverage emerging technologies such as artificial intelligence and digital identities? And this encapsulates everything I said before, because artificial intelligence can help us integrate information that is impossible for any one human to do. And it can do data mining. So let's say, I'm gonna use an Afghanistan example. Uh, I'm, I'm making it up, it's not a real one, based upon my anecdotal experience. Let's say we wanna put in an orchard in a valley in Eastern Afghanistan. Artificial intelligence and data mining will enable us to go through our 55 plus years as an agency all over the world, all programs and activities in Afghanistan, in that valley maybe even specifically, because there's probably been a USA program there in like 1967, and to integrate that knowledge and to reduce it down into a targeted and focused set of information that's prioritized so that instead of being overwhelmed by information, the most relevant, actionable, and useful information can be given to the activity designer. Uh, that is a remarkable thing because, you know, it's impossible to know everything that USAID has done in every country and how it relates to any one project in the future. But with artificial intelligence and data mining and analytics, that is at our fingertips. The sum of a half century experience of thousands of USAID workers in concert with hundreds of thousands, if not a million, host country partners over the course of these decades is now at our fingertips. And it can be integrated, synchronized, prioritized, and rendered into a usable and tangible format so that our programming can be faster, 
cheaper and better. So that's the joy of artificial intelligence. But come, that comes with the fact that everything digital eventually at some point is created by a human being. And our biases and preconceptions can be built into that analytics. The story in the technological literature, including facial recognition and language recognition, there are many, many examples of where discrimination and bias unintentionally, I mean, oftentimes intentionally, but more often than not, unintentionally integrated into the very programming so that the distinguishing on the basis of who you are, what you are, what class you are in, gets integrated into the programming and, and, and whole populations, let alone households, can be disenfranchised. So the lab is as concerned with the liberation that comes with artificial intelligence and machine learning and data mining. We are as concerned with that as we are the oppression that can come with reducing the, the individual to an algorithm to being recognized on the street in their most private moments and having a social credit assigned to them on the basis of what is expected will be their future conduct. And that's what's at stake. And that's what USAID is charging through the breach and the digital strategy enables us to do is that Orwellian world is out there and is no longer a science fiction novel. Facial recognition, pattern of life algorithms, street level identification is present and it's being marketed. And it's being marketed to those regimes who cannot be trusted with the liberty of their people. So the digital strategy simultaneously wants to unleash the power of artificial intelligence and yet protect the human individual from the ravages that can come from digital authoritarianism. Scientific research is vital to addressing the world's most pressing development challenges. How is the lab using scientific research evidence in development? And would you tell us the role the Higher Education Solutions Network plays in this effort? Well, there, there are a lot of them. I, I was focusing uh, on the, the work that we're doing to prevent the success of uh, genocide. But I do want to point to one of the programs I'm most proud of, and that is PEER. PEER is one of the few that allows the United States to fund foreign scientists who are working with American scientists to solve problems in the field. And through PEER, we are able to work with uh, scientists from the state of Washington, actually, I think from University of Washington, Seattle, to work with a geophysicist in, or at least a geologist in Lebanon to develop a model for earthquake prediction that not only helps the people in Lebanon where it was tested and developed, but now has been imported back and is being utilized on the west coast of the United States where we have seismically active zones. The PEER program, well, I don't think it's gone under the same analysis as the DIV program. I'm pretty confident if such an analysis is done, we'll, we'll have paid back dividends far more than the investment made. And in addition, where we do have near-peer competitors in science, like Russia, China, and others, it also builds bonds within the scientific community because the scientific method is a powerful process or way of knowing. 
And it's also under threat in parts of the world where authoritarianism dictates that which is to be understood as opposed to be explored and challenged and the experiment. And that's why the Higher Education Solutions Network is powerful because in the five years that the lab, five plus years that the lab's been in existence, we have helped 233 educational institutions support over a thousand research projects that have produced, and I don't know the number, but it's got to be in the multiple thousands of research publications. And then because our Center for Development Research is not content just to produce new knowledge, they now have this whole bridge program intended to link that knowledge that is found through these programs to real development. And it's just an exciting development uh, that they've done in a program called the Center for Applied Research and Innovation in Supply Chain Africa is this center will enable African academic and scientific community to improve its own supply chain management so that they can be on their own journey to self-reliance and that they can become the purveyors of the medicines, of the food, of the technology, everything that is necessary in today's multi-connected world. Supply chain management is essential. And we've seen this in COVID-19, right? Is that when supply chains break down, everyone suffers, but those at the bottom suffer most. And I could not be more proud of the bridge train program developed by the Center of Development Research that has launched this initiative in Africa with the Kwame Nkrumah University of Science and Technology in Ghana to help Africa solve its supply chain problems, both internally within the continent, but reaching out beyond the continent, from which we can all learn and share. I have every faith and confidence that we will learn about supply chains from this enterprise that will help Americans just as we learned from the experiments of that Lebanese and University of Washington scientists to bring home a tested technology for predicting earthquake behavior. So Harry, what are the three to five key things you would want our listeners to take away about USAID's Global Development Lab? Point number one, innovation and the willingness to take a risk is alive and well in USAID. The lab was created to advance this notion that the absence of failure is not the definition of success. And that now permeates, just as it has before, uh, all of the agency. I mean, the agency has always been composed of of risk takers. You don't take people from, from the homeland and disperse them abroad without them being innately a risk taker. But what the lab did was not create the notion of innovation within USAID, but harness it and to make it available to every bureau and mission. So innovation is alive and well at USAID, just as it was before the lab, but the lab institutionalized it in a way to strengthen and nurture it. And now in the new bureau of uh, DDI or Development, Democracy and Innovation, to make it even closer to the field. So that's, that's the first thing. The other one is development cannot be done by the practitioners of development only. The next step is what the lab has demonstrated and USAID has embraced is this notion that anyone, anywhere, from any means can have an idea that can change the way we look at the world and how we interact within it. And that ability to reach out 
from beyond the institution and empower others to solve problems is alive and well. An example of that within the new DDI Bureau is the new partnership initiative, which enables USAID to better harness the skills, the commitment, and the experiences of others who are not traditionally placed within the development community to contribute to solving those problems. Because at the end of the day, we want to help new local partners solve problems effectively at home. Without that, you will never get the journey to self-reliance, which is the credo upon which everything we do at USAID. We want to so change the world that our help and change is no longer necessary. And we are well on our way. And, and so I want people to know that not only is innovation and risk-taking alive and well at USAID, empowering those from all walks of life, regions, and, and perspectives is also embraced within USAID. And the third part I want to say is the other take-home is the private sector is our friend. You can not solve world hunger without the private sector being the way in which it is delivered eventually through new seed varieties, new research, the investment that private sector institutions do, whether it's educational enterprises on distance delivery for education. I have three children and I'm trying now to do distance delivery. And you know, the, these companies have made it so. I mean, I think we all know about Zoom, right? Well, Zoom can transform much in the world of development, but it's a private company. Or, or so I believe it to be. Actually, I haven't researched Zoom, so I don't know how many shareholders it has or if it's privately held. But my point being is the private sector is the answer at the end of the day. And so those are the three take-homes I would like people to realize. We are embracing risk and leaning forward. We are empowering the whole world. We are partnering with the private sector. And we are at the end of the day, the fourth one is assiduously answerable to and accountable to the American people and the tax dollars that they have allowed us to spend on their behalf to making the world not only a better place, but America more prosperous and secure. So Harry, as we close, what advice would you give someone who is considering a career in public service? It is never too late to be a part of the federal service. The sum of experiences that one has can contribute markedly to any role within the federal government. I, I came late. I did not start my federal service until I was in my 50s, for the most part. And I brought my experiences from Alaska and natural resources and teaching and, and scientific research and wildlife and forestry. I brought my experiences from serving in, in places in conflict such as Afghanistan, Iraq, Rwanda, Bosnia, El Salvador. And they seemed disparate until I came to USCID. And it was, an, and to me, it was so gratifying to learn that every supposedly disjointed and disconnected aspect of my life, because I've never had a career trajectory, suddenly came to be relevant to the job. So that's one is that it's never too late. You can always contribute through, through federal service. The other thing I would like to say is that, and, and this isn't for everybody, 
But especially if you're in your 20s and 30s, and, and, and of course, family obligations can constrain these parameters, but if you want to succeed in federal service, I think you have to jump around a lot. I think you can't be content on a single trajectory. I think you have to be willing to take a personal as well as professional risk. And that's the third part, is that the federal service is far from being a dowdy, risk-averse universe. It is actually a place that thirsts for those who are willing to experiment and those who are willing to take a risk. But that is daunting because we are also accountable. And there is that optimal combination of embracing risk that is the federal service and being accountable to the American taxpayer who does not want you to flush their dollars away, nor should they have you flush their dollars away. And so what I would say is that always think about public service. I mean, I will not spend the rest of my life in the federal government. This will be an episode in my non-career trajectory, but it'll be an episode which I hope is of significant duration because it is extremely satisfying. I feel good about the work that I'm doing. I feel good about our country. And I feel good about my colleagues who never rest and are constantly charging ahead and, and are utilizing their varied experiences from within the federal service and without to make this world a much better place for all of its inhabitants. So thank you, Harry. That's a, a wonderful advice and your passion is clear about your mission. So I want to thank you for your time today, but more importantly, I would like to thank you for your dedicated service to the country. Well, it's a pleasure, sir. And thank you for that. It's a, uh, it's an honor and a privilege to be within USAID. Um, it's a remarkable institution to be a part of. This has been the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with Harry Bader, Acting Executive Director of the U.S. Global Development Lab within USAID. Be sure to join us next week for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government leadership and its effectiveness. Until then, subscribe, download, and listen to the entire interview at Podcast One, iTunes, or on your favorite podcast app, and as always at businessofgovernment.org. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan, and thanks for joining us. This has been the Business of Government Hour. Be sure to visit us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. There you can learn more about our programs and get a transcript of today's conversation. Until next week, it's businessofgovernment.org. How can government best use big data to transform decision-making, public services delivery, and communication? The IBM Center Report, Integrating Big Data and Thick Data to Transform Public Services Delivery, by Yan-Yan Ang, presents five recommendations for public managers introducing the concept of mixed analytics, urging thick data, meaning qualitative information about users, to be presented alongside big data to improve government decision-making. Visit businessofgovernment.org to read more.